0: A couple of sort of introductory general things first of all, I'm talking about the historical Jesus and it's really important to see the difference between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. Um, Historical Jesus scholars, and there are such things, uh, make distinctions between the historical Jesus, the man who walked the the hills of Galilee in the 30s, and um, that the real historical man who was crucified on a cross And the Christ of faith, by which they mean um, Christ as he is part of the Trinity, Christ as he's thought of by Christians, uh, the Christ that uh, Christians will meet in the church and at prayer. So I'm making that distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. We'll come back to that question at the end, I think, and talk about whether... Whether it is a distinction, whether it's whether they really are two separate people, whether there's more of a spectrum and how the two relate together. But for the purposes of most of this talk, I'm talking about the real historical man who lived in the first century. Another thing just to mention too is that I'll use the 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 dating scheme C E and B C E. Are most of you familiar with that? <laughs> Whenever I give a talk, everybody, so there's always somebody who asks that. Their, their dates are exactly the same as, as B, C, and A, D. Um, you can think of it as Common Era or Christian Era, whichever you prefer, but the dates are the same as B, C, and A, D. So yeah, I just got into that habit of saying C, E, B, C, E. So first question then is how do we know anything about Jesus at all? How do we know that he actually existed? Now a few decades ago that might have seemed like a very strange question, um, but it does seem to have come to the fore again recently, uh, not only in academic scholarship but particularly in the internet. Uh, There's all kinds of uh, discussion groups on the internet, did Jesus exist? And a recent poll actually found that something like 40% of young people were not at all sure that Jesus had existed as a real person. So the whole question of Jesus's existence, um, how we know anything about him, has become quite topical. On your sheet, um, and maybe I should just mention your sheets. You've got got one sheet with pretty pictures, uh, which is sort of outlines for the two talks. And then you've got some extra (coughs) material. We may not have time to, I'm sure we won't have time to sort of look through everything in detail. But this is partly so that you've got something to take home with you um, and you can read later. There's a sheet of texts to do with miracles. Uh, There's a picture of the temple. And there's some passages from Jewish writers on uh, Pontius Pilate. Uh, There's also another passage from Josephus on another Jesus, who ended up uh, in a similar position to our Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and there's also some further reading at the end and uh, websites and things like that. So I'm, I'm going to be broadly looking through these, these sheets of the pretty pictures on first of all. So how do we know about Jesus anyway? How do we know anything about Jesus? Um, starting off Roman sources, we do have a reference to Jesus in Tacitus, writing in the early second century. And he's the first uh, one that I've put on that sheet. He says, he's talking about Christians being persecuted in the time of Nero in the 60s, and he says that Christians took their name from Christus, i.e. Christ, who was executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. So he's not telling this very much, but this is early 2nd century. Um, Romans weren't generally interested in somebody of Jesus' social class, They only became interested in Jesus when his followers started to um, prove to be a problem. And that seems to be around about the second century. So, in the second century, Romans do take an interest in him. A more substantial reference to Jesus outside the Gospels comes in that second passage there, though. That's from the Jewish historian Josephus, who was born about 37 CE. So, he's born just after the time of Jesus. But he wrote a couple of very long, very detailed histories of um, his own Jewish people at the end of the first century. And he does have this passage um, in one of his works, The the Antiquities of the Jews. And I'll just read it out. Um, You'll see there that there's some passage. uh, uh, Have any of you seen this passage before? Some of you familiar with it? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, so Josephus says, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him Did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvellous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. So that's the passage as we have it now in Josephus, written around about a hundred AD, ninety five to a hundred AD, in Rome. Now, the difficulty with this passage is that Josephus was a Jew, he was a Pharisaic Jew, and it seems almost impossible that a Pharisee could have said those passages that I've put in italics, if indeed one ought to call him a man, he was the Messiah, and on the third day he appeared to them restored to life. Added to this, Origen, writing in the the third century, says that Josephus wasn't a Christian, But Eusebius, writing in the fourth century, knows this passage. So what most people think has happened here is that Josephus wrote something about Jesus, and then around about sometime in the fourth century, some Christian scribe altered it, probably adding in these bits in italics and maybe taking something else out, maybe something uh, wasn't quite uh, his or her liking. And we know that Josephus' writings were preserved by Christians because uh, Jews didn't like him because uh, Josephus had acted rather uh, treacherously in the war against Rome that the Jews had in 66 to 70. And so Jews didn't like him very much, but Christians did like his writings because he mentions some of the people that we know of from the Gospels. And so the general view is that Josephus wrote something about Jesus but it's been tampered with by Christians early on. The question, though, is how much, and I would love to know what Josephus had said. If we had something from a first-century Jewish author about Jesus, that would just be amazing. I've got this little list of things that I really hope get found in the Judean desert, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, I mean, <laughs> It's amazing, and it might happen. (laughs) And certainly an original copy of Josephus's Antiquities is one of those things. But if you take out the passages uh, that are in italics, the rest of the language is pretty much the kind of thing that Josephus usually says. It's Josephan language. And so it may be that if you take out the stuff in italics, we've got something quite close to what a Jew at the end of the first century said about Jesus. And I think that still suggests interesting things. It suggests that he knows that he was a miracle worker. He wrought surprising feats. He also knows that he was a teacher. Um, He won over many Jews and many Greeks. And also this passage about Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, um, uh, sent him to the cross. So... It doesn't give us much detail, but it broadly kind of backs up the picture that we have in the the Christian Gospels. So moving on to Christian sources then. Our earliest source for Jesus is, of course, the Apostle Paul. But Paul famously isn't that interested in the historical Jesus. Paul's main focus is Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the Gospel for him. That's the thing that he's always preaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says very little about the historical Jesus. He knows that he said things about divorce. He knows that Jesus said that missionaries were entitled to, uh, to be looked after financially. He knew that Jesus preached the end of the world and the imminent end of the world. And that's something that, that Paul himself also holds on to, in, particularly in the first letter to the Thessalonians. And also Paul preserves our earliest account of uh, the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. So there's some things about the historical Jesus there in Paul, but uh, generally speaking, he's not that interested in in the life of of Jesus, at least in so far as we can tell from his letters. Of course, we don't know what Paul talks to people about in the churches that he founded, but when he's writing letters to them, he doesn't tend to refer too much to the life of Jesus. But it's interesting that Paul is writing in the 50s, though. It's within 20 years or so of Jesus' death. Paul clearly knows the 12, he knows Peter, he knows Jesus' brother James, and so this is very, very strong evidence, uh, not only for Jesus' existence, but also for uh, being able to fill in some of the details. And again, considering that Jesus is not one of the elite He's somebody from fairly low uh, social status. It's quite amazing that we have this amount of evidence really given over to him. We actually have far more evidence for the existence of Jesus than we do for the existence of Alexander the Great. So if you're going to start questioning the existence of Jesus, there's an awful lot of characters in ancient history that you might want to uh, question as well. And then of course we have the Gospels, uh, written of course several decades after the time of Jesus, but not ridiculously late. Most people think that Mark's Gospel is the first Gospel, written perhaps around about 70 AD, and that's a really significant date. Does anyone know the significance of 70 AD? (laughs) Oh, you all (laughs) know. Yes. Destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of the temple. Because the Jewish uh, Jewish war with Rome started in 66, ended in the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And it's that huge, huge event within Judaism that causes not only ancient Jews to think about what does it mean to be Jewish now that we no longer have the temple, but it also makes Christians, they also get taken up in this whole kind of ripple effect, starting to think, what does it mean to be Christian now that the temple isn't there? And now that we appear to be no longer Jews, you know, who are we? And I think it's no accident that the Christian gospels start to be written after the fall of Jerusalem, when this whole question of identity, who are we? What is our narrative? What's our story? And so that starts to get written down about AD 70. First of all, Mark, and then Matthew and Luke using Mark and adding in their own material, particularly from the hypothetical document, Q. So anyone heard of Q? <laughs> Q. From the German Quelle, meaning source. Um, this is a hypothetical document, but it's certainly the case that there is some material in Matthew and Luke that is not in Mark, and it follows the same order, it's almost exactly uh, word for word the same in Matthew and Luke. And so I think it's a reasonable hypothesis that they use not only Mark's gospel but also this other source, Q. How old Q was, we don't know. It was older than Matthew and Luke but we don't know exactly how old. And then, of course, we have John's gospel, which from ancient times has been seen as a more spiritual gospel, (coughs) largely largely because it's so different to the other three gospels. Um, I think John probably knew Mark as well, but just decided to write his story in a rather different way. Um, And I think scholars nowadays are sort of half and half. Some think he knew Mark, some think he didn't. But in either case, uh, Mark's, uh, John's Gospel tends to be drawn on less in historical Jesus research because his Gospel seems to have taken everything to a different level. Um, he's much more interested in the sort of the cosmic um, Christ, how Christ fits into the whole kind of scheme of things. He starts in the beginning, of course, and kind of puts Jesus there in creation. And so it feels as if we're sort of in a rather different thought world with, with John. So the Gospels, of course, are the products of post-Easter faith. They're all written not only after the resurrection event, but after several decades of contemplating that, thinking about that, um, and also a lot of problems between the early Christian group and the synagogue. And I think that's, that's something we'll come back to later on when we're looking at the trial narratives, the fact that um, there has been this long period of hostility, perhaps, and uh, conflict between early Christian groups and the synagogue. But I think that the Gospels are reasonably good historical sources. You need to be careful with them, but I don't think they're anything like as bad as uh, some people might suggest. I think as long as you're cautious, they're fairly good historical sources. Anything on sources before we Move away. There are, of course, non-canonical texts, as our photographer <laughs> reminded me earlier. Uh, things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter. Um, some of these are a lot later, though. Some of them are from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. Um, and I think, by and large, the ones that are in the New Testament canon are are the ones that um, that most Christians were finding most edifying and they generally tend to be the earliest ones so i think those are the best ones for historical reconstruction the, so do you think the you great think, was early 2nd century about about 120 or so yeah yeah. yeah, well Pliny the Younger, he mentions Christians, um, and, and he's writing to, to Trajan and saying, What shall I do about these Christians in my in my province? Shall I just kill them or what do I do? Um, I mean he's very brutal the way he talks about it. Um, and he says his policy is just to torture them a bit, find out or and find out if they you know what they believe, ask them if they want to uh, sacrifice to the gods of Rome and if they don't want to do that he kills them. So uh, Pliny is a really good source for Christians and he says Christians are worshipping Jesus as a god and he says they're meeting together but he doesn't really tell us much about Jesus. He, he assumes though the existence of Jesus and that, that there is some kind of historical person at the basis of this. And Suetonius does mention, well he mentions someone called Crestus who might be Jesus but actually, I think yeah, later, yeah, scholarship, yeah, later scholarship is saying that probably not. So in any way, it's just a throwaway comment. It's not really enough to tell us. There's a question next. There's a music coming out about Mary. Oh, I saw it this morning. Yes. What are your thoughts Well, I was going to get to Jesus' followers um, a little bit later. But um, yeah, no, it's coming out, I think, the 16th of March. It's, it's a... Really quite controversial. Yeah, it's a very different picture of Mary. Certainly not none of the prostitute idea. But we'll <laughs> we'll get to that later. Yes. Um, there's also sort of secondary sources like which we don't have anymore, such as um, phallus Thallus, about Sanpulensis. I can't remember exactly, like, but they refer to events in Christ's time, and um, yeah. th- th- they if nothing else sort of some sort of substance. been lost but have been found quoted by other scholars later on. Yes that that one of the troubles, I mean it's like that with Q, that once a document gets sort of incorporated into another document, you sort of you don't read that original document and it gets lost. And I mean, you know, only a tiny fraction of all the documents written in antiquity has survived. So yes you're right, there's there's these little tantalizing references. I'll have to add them to my list of, my wish list of what we find in a in a cave the Judean desert, but you're right, this phallus, and the, um, Seraphim is the bishop of, uh, where is he, somewhere in the second century, who writes about... Is it Antioch? No, is it Antioch? Oh, I can't remember, but, but he reads the Gospel of Peter, and he's sort of out link with the Gospel of Peter, which was later found in the 19th century, but it's, and it is an interesting text, but probably from the second century, and clearly sort of derives from our, our Gospels, the canonical Gospels. So, yes, I mean, there's a whole industry of Christian literature, not just what we have in, in the New Testament. Sorry, sorry. i sorry, how does the uh, Arab uh, version of style of this collection goes here? There's I believe that, you know, there have been some uh, Christian uh, uh, extra recital on here, you know, because you're on I believe the Arab one is considered to be closer to the original meaning. I you aware of it. Yeah, I, I don't think it is. I don't think most scholars would think I mean the trouble is our earliest text of Josephus is from the 11th century, um, which is, you know, really late. So anything that happened in those 11 centuries to the text, we just have no idea. Um, the the Arabic one has has it has a description of Jesus and it has it has some extra stories. It it talks about um, the, the incident in the temple as a much sort of bigger thing um, but I, as far as, I mean certainly the, the last I sort of read about this people were thinking that that was a later, a, a later version to, to what we have here and certainly it's it, it, it does seem like more of a sort of a you know it, it, it's far more sort of detailed and it, it's, it reads more like something from later on but yeah you're, you're, you're right there are ver- different versions of, of, of Josephus yeah. I know, just be a pest and just offer one more thing? Yes. Um, it's not writing as such, it's more it's graffiti. Um, the the graffito of uh, Alex and is yes. worshipping his god. Yes. And, uh, the all-headed, crucified man that we found uh, uh, scratched into some wall in the Palatine. Yeah. Um, I know it's late, but um, to me it's, it sort of provides, again, a tantalizing glimpse Yes. And what's interesting, I don't know if you all know about the Alexamenos Graffiti, as it's called, graffito, I suppose, is the singular, isn't it? It's and on, on the Palatine Hill, on a the wall, there's a picture, it's very, very rough, a picture of a cross and then a man being crucified with the head of a, uh, a donkey. And um, it, this goes back to that there are sort of anti-Jewish slanders, that Jews worship a donkey and that what's actually in the Holy mm-hmm. of is a donkey. I mean, it's you know clearly anti-Jewish slander. But um, this is someone who's aware of that link between Jesus and the donkey, and um, and, and is clearly making fun of. I mean, people think it's probably a, a soldier. Um, is somebody stationed on the Palatine Hill? Is this another soldier who's a Christian, and somebody is kind of making fun of them? But but it's interesting, I, and I think it's it's, it's good to have that contradictory evidence, you know, evidence not from followers of Jesus, but from people, from opponents, which is why it would be so nice to know more about Josephus, Um, because, you know, this idea that that, that clearly somebody is being ridiculed because of his belief in Jesus, and and the person who's doing this, uh, scratching this picture, also knows that there's a link between Christians and Jews at this time. But, yes, I mean, it is quite late. Third century, the very earliest, possibly fourth or it's hard to know. Yeah? I just wanted to ask quickly, do you believe Jesus had brothers and sisters within the family of Mary and Joseph? Yes, I think so. I think that's the most natural reading of, of the Christian Gospels. I think it's a it's certainly that the Proto-Evangelium of James is a second-century text which has, I mean, a lot, I, I, I was in a, I went to Catholic convent school when I was younger and uh, we were always told that Joseph was an older man who had uh, children from a previous marriage. And, you know, I used to think, where did they get this information from? <laughs> it's all from the proto-evangelium of James. Um, and I know that uh, traditional Catholic teaching is that when it says Adelphoi, um, they're not brothers, they're, they're cousins or step-brothers. Yeah, but no, I mean, the, the natural reading of that is that they're brothers and sisters. Yeah, I don't think. I mean, I think it's only later, when that whole idea about the virginity of Mary and the perpetual virginity of Mary really gets going, that um, that becomes a problem at all in Jesus having brothers and sisters. How many brothers? <laughs> uh, well, I think there's four brothers mentioned and well, three, bro- four brothers and, and sisters. You know, nobody bothers to count sisters. <laughs> the girls there's a couple of girls too, so. Anyway, so um, thank you. That's great. Great questions. You're clearly very informed audience. Um, I just want to say something about recent study of uh, historical Jesus. And by recent, I'm being sort of fairly broad here. Um, historical Jesus study kind of goes in waves, and the latest wave has been from about the '80s, '70s, '80s onwards. We're still in this sort of wave of historical Jesus. Study. But the big thing in historical Jesus scholarship, still at the moment, is to focus on Jesus as a Jew. Now, that might seem obvious what else was Jesus, but it is quite amazing how that sort of Jewishness tended to be lost in earlier scholarship. I think until about the 17th and 80s, people tended to see him as the first Christian. Uh, nowadays there's been a tendency far more so to see him as part of that Jewish background and to ask what kind of a Jew he was and and, and all of that has been sort of facilitated by the fact that we have a much better idea of first century Judaism now um, with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls for example with recent archaeology well again when I say recent after the 67 uh, the six day war um, there was a lot of archaeology done in uh, Jerusalem, there's still lots of American universities doing archaeology in Galilee, and they've provided a really good picture of of, uh, the Jewishness of Galilee. Uh, People use stone utensils rather than pottery, for example, because it doesn't become impure. People keep off pig bones. Uh, People have ritual baths called mikvahot, um, so they found all of these uh, things within the archaeological record that shows just how Jewish first-century Galilee was, and a couple of important names in that is Gershom Vermesh, writing in 1973, Jesus the Jew, um, one of the first really to kind of suggest. Obviously, it seems obvious now that Jesus should be seen in his Jewish background. Also, E.P. Sanders, another big name in this whole enterprise. Um, in terms of really trying to understand first century Judaism and Jesus' place within it. So as I said there, I think earlier scholarship tended to sort of look at what was distinctive about Jesus. How did he stand out from his Jewish background? Whereas now the question is far more, what kind of a Jew is he? Is he like the Pharisees? Is he like the zealots? You know, Where would you position him within first century Judaism? Okay, so I want to say a few things about sort of background upbringing. Um, It's not a great map, (laughs) but um, the important thing is all the stuff that's sort of vaguely purple, there's different different shades of purple there, and um, all of the purple stuff was at one time uh, ruled by Herod the Great, when Herod died in 4 BCE, there were riots, revolts all over the place. Herod had quite had a repressive reign and as soon as he disappeared there were would-be messiahs, uh, kings, all kinds of revolts broke out throughout the country. Rome acted swiftly, the legions came from the north and they burnt a, the city of Sepphoris, which is just um, across the ridge from Nazareth. You can see Sepphoris from Nazareth. So they burned that to the ground, took people into slavery. So this is all happening around about the time of Jesus' birth. Then the country was divided up. The uh, sort of mid-purpley bit is the territory of Herod Antipas, which includes Galilee and also a little bit down lower, lower to the east of the Jordan, underneath the yellow bit, that's Perea. That came under the uh, rulership of Herod Antipas, so a Jewish king, put there by Rome, but still a Jew. The southern bit, the pale, um, pale lilac bit, was uh, given to his brother Archelaus, who was deposed after 10 years because of cruelty. And so Rome decided that it would make the southern bit into a, a, a Roman province. And so that's why um, when Jesus is in the north, he's under the tetrarchy of um, Herod Antipas, He's ruled by a Jewish king, but as soon as he goes down to the south, then he's in the Roman province, um, a land uh, occupied by Rome with a Roman governor at the head. And, um, and I think it also gives you some sense of, um, you know throughout this period you get lots of uh, partitioning, lots of um, different rulers. The whole thing is very unstable at this period. And I think that contributes to this idea of sort of the hopes and dreams that people had. It was only 100 years before this that Israel had actually been ruled by native kings. The Hasmonean high priest kings were only about 100 years or so before the time of Jesus. Since then, they had Herod the Great, they had Rome, they had all sorts of uh, differences. Or, you know, it must have seemed like the whim of the ruler and we're being ruled by somebody else. So you can sort of understand why people may have sort of had these longings for a new king, somebody who's going to sweep away uh, Rome and all it stands for and introduce a good time like it was in the the great old days of uh, David and Solomon. So looking at Jesus more specifically then, he's from Nazareth, tiny, tiny village, Nazareth isn't mentioned in any ancient source other than the Gospels. Most people think it only had about 200 people in it. Um, So a small place, Um, not big at all. Um, He seems to have been a carpenter. Uh, The the Greek word tektoe can mean a carpenter, a joiner. It can also mean somebody who works in uh, stone. My little pet thing is I think he was probably a boat builder. Because he spends a lot of time over on the sea, he knows uh, fishermen, Uh, who knows. But anyway, he has a trade, and that seems to be the family trade. And at least at first, that seems to be what he spends his time doing. Then all the Gospels suggest that he uh, spent time with John the Baptist, um, and was baptised by him. There seems to be a certain reticence, particularly in, in Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel, about that baptism. Matthew is slightly embarrassed. He has John say, "Oh, surely I shouldn't be baptising you. And Jesus says, no, it's fine, you know, do it. It's, everything has to happen. Um, and that suggests a certain embarrassment, which most people think suggests that this is a historical um, piece of information. Jesus probably was baptised by John the Baptist. Which would suggest that even at this early stage, then, he has... He's somebody with a very spiritual outlook. He's sort of looking for something beyond ordinary life. Um, And presumably he shares John the Baptist's sense that something cataclysmic is gonna happen soon. God is gonna come in judgment, because that seems to be the heart of John the Baptist's message that God will come and judge people. At some point, then, Jesus seems to break out on his own with the 12 disciples. Um, I think the 12 disciples, and again, we'll, we'll come back to uh, whether there were other people too, but the, the idea of twelveness is important, I think, because it represents, what does it represent in a Jewish context? The 12 tribes, of course. 12 tribes, Jewish renewal. Um, and the fact that he's moving around, and we're told that he goes to various places in the Gospels, and all of those places are all part of what was once the, great, the kingdom, the greatest extent of the kingdom under David and Solomon. So it seems that it was some kind of Jewish renewal movement. Um, and then Jesus' message, of course, is to do with the kingdom of God expressed most succinctly, perhaps, in Mark's gospel, Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, by the kingdom of God, Jesus seems to mean not a place as such, but far more, the, the Greek word basileia is much more dynamic. It's the kingship of God, it's God's reign. So, what he seems to be preaching isn't just that we're going to go into a new land, but we're going to live in a, in a world in which God is directly in control. And this seems to be what people want to, to uh, put their trust in. There's some ambiguity in the record as to whether he thinks this is something in the future, like John the Baptist, is it something that's going to, is God going to come in judgment and is there going to be fire and burning and is it going to be something that happens in the future or is it something that's already here? And I think perhaps, so the trouble is the record kind of has both things. So you have Jesus on one hand talking about a second coming, talking about coming with the clouds and there's going to be judgment. And at the same time you have things like the parables, um, the wheat and the tares or the mustard seed that suggests the kingdom is already here in sort of small form, growing quietly. And perhaps even within Jesus's message, there was that double thrust that the kingdom is already here in the community that Jesus himself is founding, but at the same time, there's going to be something final. So people, people have to get themselves ready now. They have to repent and prepare. And I think part of that too, linked very closely with the message, is, uh, are the miracles. Um, the miracles of Jesus are, I think, a sign of the, uh, the kingdom breaking into people's lives. And the miracle tradition is, of course, very strong in the Gospels. Of course, one of the the big questions that people always ask about the miracles is, did they happen? Are they true? I think, though, as a historian, it's impossible to answer those questions. And that's not a cop-out, I think. And what I would do instead is to direct you to the sheet, um, the first sheet after the, the handout, Jesus was by no means the only person in the ancient world to perform miracles. Many people, well, not many, but there were other people who who could do this kind of thing too. One was the god Asclepius, the Roman god of healing. People would go to his shrine. um, They would bring something. They would go to sleep there. They would have a dream. Um, And the the first... um, passages on your handout are a variety of texts from the the Temple of Asclepius. um, uh, Inscriptions that people had put up thanking the god for healing them. Uh, Apollonius of Tyana too was a first century holy man. We know about him from a very long biography by uh, the writer Philostratus Um, from the third century. Apollonius, too, is credited with being able to do amazing feats, including raising a dead girl and, that, and, and also um, exorcising demons, and that's on the sheet, too. Even Roman rulers, the emperor Vespasian, was said to have been able to uh, cure a man of blindness and somebody else of a withered hand, and also uh, various emperors were, were said to be able to still the storms. So what you make of this is all up to you. But I think the important thing is that that Jesus is not the only person in the ancient world who was associated with these amazing um, activities. The important thing about Jesus too is that um, his opponents don't counter the miracle stories by saying, don't be ridiculous, nothing has happened. These people have not been healed. What they say instead is that, yes, these people have been healed, but Jesus is acting with the power of demons, demonic forces. So the question isn't so much, did Jesus do these things or did he not, which is very much what our question would be today, but it's, by what power did he do this? And um, you see this already in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 3, scribes come from Jerusalem and they see what Jesus is doing, and they say he's acting with the power of the Beelzebub. So they don't say, oh, don't be silly, nothing's happening, no, these things aren't happening at all, he's a charlatan. They say, yes, these things are happening, but he's acting with demonic powers. And you get that same thing in, in, uh, in contradictory traditions as well. I mean, Josephus, again, says quite happily, he did these amazing deeds. Um, and also in rabbinic literature... Jesus is said to be a sorcerer. So again, there's this idea that, I mean, these texts, the rabbinic texts are quite a lot later. They're 4th, 5th, 6th century probably. But still, it's interesting that, again, they're not saying he didn't do these things. He's just saying, yes, he was possessed by an evil spirit. So I think, you know, clearly as you read the, the gospel accounts, and I think to be a responsible historian in a way, you have to see what other people are say and put this in its context, which is why I'm very keen on sort of reading other primary texts and kind of looking at what other people are thinking about at the time. I mean, this is a world where people do believe that people can be possessed by demons um, and, and, and demons are a large part of what's going on here. Um, so, the, the, there is lots of other literature that, that talks about... Um, I mean, there's a couple of Jewish holy men as well, though the, um, the the references to them are quite a lot later, but they are said to have lived in the first century. And, of course, Elijah and Elisha are also credited with um, doing this kind of thing much, much earlier. There are similar things told of Pythagoras. Um, he, he could supposedly um, stop the wind and... Uh, and, and, and pestilence and things like that. And, and, and also those, um, I mean Philo, a Jewish writer says that um, Augustus could um, quell the wind as well, the emperor. So none of these things are entirely unique. Where Jesus is different, I think, is that often in the miracle work things of the ancient world, people, um, there was a lot of hullabaloo about it. There were incantations, there were um, complicated rituals. What's different about Jesus is is that he just tends to say the word. I mean, in some of those uh, miracles, there's more to it. You know, he makes spittle, he puts it on people's eyes. Uh, But most of the time, it's simply by a word. So there's that kind of authoritative command about Jesus that is different to most of these um, other people. But in terms of kind of crowd, uh, friends and supporters, you have large crowds. You also have women and women, when, if, you put, if you do a Google search of Jesus' disciples and images, you will get entirely pictures of men. You will get <laughs> the 12 disciples. And yet it's very clear from the gospels themselves that Jesus had very close female supporters as well. Mark's gospel only tells us about them right at the end at the story of the crucifixion. Suddenly you find out, he says that uh, there were women there who had followed him from Galilee. And you think, oh, right, okay, <laughs> Jesus, it's not just Jesus and the Twelve, it's Jesus and the Twelve and some women as well. And um, Luke's Gospel tells us quite clearly that um, there were women there, Mary Magdalene, he mentions, uh, Joanna, and uh, Susanna, and he says that um, they, had, uh, they paid for him out of their own resources. It suggests that they're sort of donating money to the movements too. So clearly this kind of picture, I mean the, the Gospels are keen to sort of underline the, the 12 male disciples, but, but clearly there's lots of other disciples as well. It's not just Jesus and the 12. And to come back to the, the Mary Magdalene film that's coming out in March, um, I think it is going to cause quite a lot of controversy, And but but in some ways it's what it's doing is very clever, and it's only what female scholars have been saying for a while, which is that given ancient gender demarcations, it would be very difficult for a woman, for a man like Jesus to baptize a woman, um, or for men to go into the female parts of houses. You know, Women tended to, to stay together. And there were much stricter gender codes. Um, that's not to say it would be impossible, but it would be much easier for Christianity to spread if female followers of Jesus were the ones who were going to the the, uh, the women in a, in a new area, if, if it was the women who were um, uh, baptizing. And so uh, the main sort of thrust of this new film about Mary Magdalene is that she is sort of the, the leader of this female this sort of branch and um, going to uh, baptise women and taking the message to women I think there's there's some things in the film which are far more controversial than that but that actually strikes me as being really quite a quite a good um, a good way to kind of imagine Mary Magdalene not as this prostitute as she's been thought ever since um, when is it the 6th century Um, and there's no indication of that at all of course in, in the Gospels one of the strange things is that there are a couple of big cities in Galilee. There's Sepphoris, um, which is built by, that's the one that the Romans um, burnt to the ground, and then Herod Antipas rebuilt it. And then there's another city, Tiberias, on the lake, which Herod built as his administrative headquarters. And one of the really strange things about Jesus' story is that you never hear of Jesus going to either of these cities. Now that might just be because, you know, the tradition hasn't told us that. Or it may be a deliberate strategy that he knew what had happened to Herod to John the Baptist, and he was keeping away from Antipas's territory. Um, that doesn't mean at all that, that people in the court of Antipas though weren't interested in Jesus and finding out about him. And, and certainly, if, if there's historical basis to that reference to Joanna being the, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, it would suggest that even at quite high levels. There was interest here in Jesus, this, this healer, and perhaps people, even <coughs> in the cities, were sort of making their way to... <coughs> hey, could you put some guest please? I'm oh, sorry, I'm down here. Okay. Um, just going back slightly, one, um, where did the, the idea that maybe Magdalene was a prostitute came from? That always was. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not biblical at all. It's it's rather an amalgamation, but the difficulty is that nearly all women were called Mary in the first century. I mean, they really were. Something like a third of women were called Mary. It was a, a very popular name. And so we tend to have nicknames, Mary Magdalene, Mary, you know, other, other Marys. And, and if you read the New Testament, there are lots of Marys. So it's an amalgamation of Mary in Luke's Gospel, where it we're told Mary Magdalene has seven demons, then she gets added to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who washes um, his feet at the, um, uh, in John's Gospel, in, in chapter 12. And then she gets added to another Mary, who's a sinner from the city in uh, Luke 7. Um, and that's the sinner from the city. It makes people think, ah, you know, it's a female sinner. What kind of sinner? She must be a prostitute. Um, and then there's another reference uh, to Jesus eating with uh, tax collectors and prostitutes. Well, what prostitutes do we know of? It must be the sinner from the city, must be Mary. So it's amalgamation of all of those different women, actually, that then become kind of mixed together. And the first time, actually, that um, we specifically have Mary said to be a prostitute is, I think, 591 by Pope Gregory the Great. Um, he says, and, and the big thing then becomes, uh, the church becomes very interested in her, not so much because she's a prostitute, but the repentant prostitute. So it's the repentance image that's important. And then, of course, she gets portrayed in art and every um, Jesus film that there ever was. She's always the love interest. And then, of course, Dan Brown comes along and actually makes her into the the wife and, and I think to some extent this modern thing about her being the wife even if she's no longer seen as the prostitute but she's the wife of Jesus is also I think a subtle sort of belittling it's that idea that you know she's only where she is because she's sleeping with the boss kind of thing and 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 poor old Mary I think whatever the background was I mean I actually I think it's amazing that a female disciple has been remembered in the tradition at all. Um, there's if you actually look in the New Testament there's hardly anything but there are some references to her and I think that suggests that there's a whole back story that we just don't know we've talked about um, friends and supporters and some of the opposition and certainly opposition to some extent in Mark's gospel from Jesus' family itself um, that of course gets toned down in Matthew and Luke because they have the birth stories and um, the opposition wouldn't sort of fit quite so well. Um, The main opposition, I suppose, in all of the Gospels, though, is the Pharisees, um, these disputes over the Jewish uh, interpretation of the Jewish law, Um, and this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the the difficulty with the Gospels, I think, is that by the time they're written, there's been a lot of antagonism between Christian groups and uh, the, the local synagogue, both sides sort of working out if Christians can still be Jews, should Christians still be coming to the synagogue or not. And then with the fall of Jerusalem, you know, who's a Jew, who's a Christian? Um, and a, a lot of the antagonism towards the Pharisees in the gospels, I think, stems from this historical position, particularly as the Pharisees were asserting themselves as the leaders of um, post-destruction Judaism. They were kind of the ones emerging as the leaders of the synagogues. And I think that's why you get so much uh, antagonism towards them in the the Gospels. I mean, clearly, I think the Pharisees would have been discussing, disputing with Jesus over interpretation of the law. That's what Pharisees did. That's what they were interested in. and, and we see them discussing things to do with purity, Sabbath observance, and all of these things, divorce, um, with Jesus in the Gospels. But I think that, that claim in Mark 3, six that um, the Pharisees were plotting to kill him is probably exaggerated. There's very little evidence that the Pharisees were in a position to, um, to kill anybody actually, at the time, and far more likely, I think, that, you know, it's a new guy in town, a new preacher, let's find out what he says about things. Do you, do, um, also, we don't know, he's a term, it wasn't all of them. It all of them? <laughs> who, the Pharisees. All of them. the Pharisees who were... Yes. I you, well, I, just, I mean, some people do say that Jesus himself was a Pharisee, and his <laughs> interest in, in uh, law, his interest in, in, in certain other things... Perhaps pushes him in that direction. I mean, I don't think so myself, but um, yes, I mean, presumably it wasn't all of them. Certainly in the gospel tradition, it seems to be particularly the ones from uh, Jerusalem. In fact, we don't know how many Pharisees there were in in Galilee at all. I mean, I'm not into Pharisees. It's it's less clear and exact than we would like, but yes, I mean, I I think there's certainly a a lot more um, antagonism Come into the Gospels because of this kind of historical background, because of the, the history of conflict that they've had. And these conflicts are over the things that presumably Jesus' followers also uh, conflicted with the synagogue over. Things like should we keep the purity laws? Can we be divorced? Um, if, what, are we keeping Sabbath? Clearly, by the time the Gospels were written, they weren't any longer keeping purity laws. They weren't keeping the law. They weren't um, they weren't keeping the Sabbath observance. But that prob- that took several decades to kind of work itself out. It doesn't seem you know it wasn't a clear cut thing that after Jesus, all his followers stopped following the Jewish law at all. It took a long time for that to work itself out. And just before we finish for a break, because I know you wants be a cup of tea, um, just a question of who did Jesus think he was and who did other people think he was. Um, there's clear evidence in the uh, Gospels, I think, that people thought he was a prophet. John the Baptist, come back again, which I always think is an interesting thing. Um, you know, John the Baptist, back again. It's an odd thing, isn't it? And perhaps also suggests that Jesus was baptizing. We don't get much sense of that in the Gospels. Um, Christians Mm. did baptize from very early on, but the strange thing is we're not shown much sign of Jesus baptizing in the Gospels. But but if people are thinking he's John the Baptist, come back again, that suggests he's baptizing too. Um, Some kind of Christ, Messiah... The term only means anointed one, so it could, God's anointed one, somebody sent by God for a particular purpose. King, did people have nationalistic ideas? Probably all of those things. What there's no relevance for is that people thought he was some of those things in John's Gospel, Saviour of the World, Logos, Unique Son of God, uh, God himself. Those are probably titles that, that come from later times, later speculations, particularly post-Easter speculation, I think. And the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't use any of those terms of himself, ever, and the only term he uses is son of man, which is an extremely (laughs) ambiguous term. Some people think it just means I, others think it means one, you know, one has nowhere to lay one's head. Um, the strange thing I always think is that when it was, it, it, it works as a Aramaic term to mean I or an bar-nasha, but when it's translated into Greek in the Gospels, I always think it's strange that they kept. You know, if it just means I, why not just translate it as I in Greek? That would be the simple thing, but they don't. They keep that term, and I think it's supposed to refer to something. And the most likely thing is it's that. Uh, son of Man, and to go back to your point about Daniel, it's it's the Danielic vision um, where Daniel sees a vision of one like a Son of Man coming at the end times. So, so whether Jesus himself made that connection with Daniel, we don't know. But certainly, I think at some point along the way, people did start to make that connection, and particularly given that eschatological sort of the end time. so Jesus now becomes anointed one of God, the end time. Person from Daniel Mm -hmm. who's going to sort of usher in this great kingdom of God.